We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. This is our fifth interview with a venture capitalist, part of a series of interviews on how the U.S. gets innovation and new technologies. Venture capital plays a big part in that. We're lucky in this episode to have Glenn Solomon, who is the managing partner at GGV Capital, one of the bigger venture capital firms with a big footprint in Southeast Asia and Israel, two of the places we've had a focus on. Glenn, thanks for doing this. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. I appreciate your taking the time. Let me start with a question that you, I think you wrote somewhere, every company is becoming a software company. What did you mean by that? I believe it. I mean, I, I say it too. I usually say a tech company, but what did you mean? Yeah, uh, Jim, it's it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks thanks for having me. So every, I, I truly do believe every company in the world is becoming a software company. And what I mean by that is if you think about the primary way that companies liaise with and coordinate and interact with their primary stakeholders today, their customers, their partners, you know, the supply chain, everybody that they have to work with, certainly their employees, it's increasingly becoming a digital interface that is primary for that communication and coordination with each of those constituents. You know, I, I was very recently, as you know, I'm, I'm out in Silicon Valley and was recently sharing a coffee with a candidate for one of my companies in downtown Palo Alto. And we went into a, a coffee shop that's quite popular. And I noticed that three quarters of the counter space was dedicated to folks who had ordered online and were coming in to pick up their coffee versus a quarter or less of the counter space that was for walk-ins. And what that tells me is they're becoming a software company because more than, well, more than half of their customers and probably well north of half of their business is coming from interactions that, com- that customers and would-be customers are having either on a mobile app or on a dot-com ordering their coffee. So in a world where those orders, you know, the, the site doesn't work or it's down or it's not up to date, and the latest special isn't available or the site isn't marketing whatever's available in store, people are going to go elsewhere because there's other options. And so even for the local coffee shop, they've got to be great software companies or else they're going to lose share and ultimately lose business. And so, so that, that I think is the trend and you're seeing it across industry. You're seeing it across the globe in companies of really all shapes and sizes. You used the example of Domino's, I think, in one of your pizzas. One of your pizzas. Yeah. You used it in one of your pizzas, but you used it in one of your essays as well. Tell us about how Domino works. And I had a question. Do they write their own app or do they contract it out? Or is it this open source tools? How, how does Domino's make it work? Okay. So Domino's is a fascinating story because if, you, if you're just a casual observer of the stock, stock market like most people, you wouldn't think that Domino's stock over the last... 10, 12 years has outperformed Google, but it has. It's up many, many, many fold 
and it's been an incredible stock to own. And I say this with the most respect possible. I don't think the pizza's gotten any better. The, the reason this Domino's has become a much, much more valuable enterprise is because they've become a software company. And you know, from the high level looking in, they report that a, a growing percentage, now a majority, a, a super majority of the orders, the interactions they have with customers are digital. So either on the .com or on the mobile app. And what that means is, you know, it, if you compare that to 15 years ago, Domino's, where probably most of their orders were coming in via telephone, you know, when, when it's telephone order in, it's probably to the local store. It's not to a centralized location that you have no idea who's on the other end of the line. You're trying to get off the phone as quickly as you can because there's probably another phone ringing to, for another order. The person placing the order doesn't have a menu in front of them. And so it's, it's, a, it's not a great experience. Compare that to today where you know, you're, you're placing a mobile order at Domino's. You've got the full menu in front of you. You're, they know who you are when you go to dominoes.com or the app. And so they're probably saying, hey, you know, Jim, you, you ordered um, the you know, cheesy crust last time. Do you want to try that again? And they probably have also done a bunch of data analysis to know that people who like the cheesy crust also will buy the brownie 50% of the time if they're offered it at checkout. And so what's happened is average order size has gone way up for them. And, you know, customer satisfaction has gone way up because the orders are more accurate. They can be placed quicker and they can handle more orders. So you've seen volume increase for all those reasons and more. And on the flip side, now they have all the data about when people are ordering and they can make much better decisions about procurement, right? Their supply chain can be managed much better when they know that, hey, it's Thursday night. It's just before you know Thursday night football. We know that whoever's playing that that week, those cities are going to boom. Let's make sure we have, you know, all the all the. Uh, I'm I'm making this up, but I I assume yeah. that those, these are the things that the algorithms show them, and the business as a result has gotten much better, and and the stock has followed. Yeah, I saw that. You know, it's not like Domino's pizza sales have increased by thirty times. It's <laughs> that the uh, it's the auxiliary sales and. Would you ascribe a lot of that to data use? I mean, it's Domino's ability to develop an algorithm that lets them collect and predict. Yeah. So a very close corollary in my mind to every company becoming a software company is that every company is rapidly becoming data-driven as well. And you know, in, in my little world, those two things aren't exactly the same. But I think when you said, you know, you, you talk about companies becoming tech companies, I think under the umbrella of becoming a tech company, becoming a software driven business, becoming a data driven business are all part of the same thing. And as you're driving more and more interactions with your key stakeholders digitally, the exhaust coming off that interaction, those interactions is data. And if you can manage that data successfully, you can make, you know, very good decisions about how you're going to run your business much better than you could without that data. And, you know, Domino's is one example, but there are many, many others where companies are getting smarter and smarter about how to, how to use data to better serve customers, make better decisions, anticipate what's coming around the corner. And it, it's, it's very exciting to be an investor in that, in that kind of environment. Is this something that only big companies can do, or are we going to see data as a service? We're already seeing data as a service. And so, so the, the cool thing about technology is it really does, in my view, it democratizes, you know, people's ability to go compete in markets. And that's why I think 
one of the one of the key reasons you're seeing new business formation on the rise and lots of entrepreneurs achieving success at rates we haven't seen before because the tooling is becoming better and better for them to get into business in a very uh, professional and successful way versus the larger more you know established incumbents this is not something i think that's well understood in washington where there's a lot of concern over you know the size and power of larger tech companies and you know i i i recognize some of the arguments there make sense but there's it's it's also true that it's never been better to be a startup and and there's there's lots of great tooling available to you to to go compete at a really high level so if you were going to talk about what a good startup needs it's not just an entrepreneur or somebody who's willing to take risk it's somebody who needs to know how to use these tools 100%. Now the tools are getting easier and easier to use. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the tools are being provided by the cloud service providers. The, the mm-hmm. primary uh, cloud service providers are Amazon with their AWS service, Microsoft with its Azure service, Google with its Google Cloud platform, and you know, there there are others coming. For example, there's a company called Snowflake which is now public and um has has it, when you said, is there data as a service? That's really Snowflake's business, right? And mm-hmm. so these guys, all these players have very large companies as customers, but they also have small companies as customers. In fact, probably every one of our startups at GGV is using at least one, if not multiple of those services to get into business. None of them are buying servers. None of them are managing their own infrastructure. They're all doing it through the clouds. This is a little off topic and it might be a little depressing, but Everyone in Washington is obsessed with the word innovation. I think that's great. But you never see them use the word entrepreneurship. And if I go to them, if I go to them and say, hey, by the way, entrepreneurship plus data will get tilt on the on the scoreboard. What would you do to make this a clearer story for the policymakers in Washington? To help people understand that there's a there's a tight bond between entrepreneurship and innovation cycles. So I think to me, it feels like some field trips are necessary. Like, and, and the good news is, you know, it used to be if, if you wanted to figure out was, what was going in, 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 in tech entrepreneurship, you, you really only had one place to go travel, which is where I'm sitting today, Silicon Valley. And that is no longer the case. So if you're a politician or, you know, in, in, in one way or another part of the federal government and in Washington, D.C., you don't have to fly five, six hours to Silicon Valley. You can take a, you know, puddle jumper to New York and you'd see a ton of innovation going on in in startups in New York. You could fly down to Austin, Texas, where there's a wellspring of new activity or my, you know, go straight south to Miami, which is rapidly becoming a, a uh, an innovation hub for technology. And then, you, you know, if you've got your passport with you, you can fly to places like Tel Aviv or lots of cities in Latin America, which are innovating at incredibly rapid pace right now. What are the common features? I used to say you needed a strong research university, but is there more going on than that? I'm a little surprised at Latin America. So what yeah. are the common features? Yeah. So this is the cool thing. It used to be, and I agree, I think like if you... And there, there's some great books on this sort of tracing the roots and heritage of Silicon Valley and why it was such a, and has been such a startup mecca. Yeah. And, and a place where innovation has really, you know, come from. 
And I do think a lot of that had to, has to do, still has to do with the research and kind of vibrancy of thought and activity around Stanford and Cal. And you know that's not, that's not changing, right? That's continuing to go. But first of all, there are lots of other great research-driven universities, and they've figured out through the models that they've seen at Stanford and Cal how to, you know, how to get great fundamental research out into commercialization. And so you know, that's not, that's not uh, just a, a Northern California thing anymore. But even more than that, what's happening is I think great entrepreneurs, sometimes they're you know, folks who are just born with an idea. But more often than not, even if they're young and early in their career, they've seen something. It might be at university, but it's probably more often, I can't prove this, I don't have the data, but at least as often, it's people who've had a job or two and they notice they, they're, they're well-schooled in the new, you know, all the new technologies that are available to them and they see a business problem early in their career. And when you think about people who have, who have those tools at their disposal and who see business problems early, they're not just in Silicon Valley any longer because you know, for, if for no other reason, then companies are increasingly becoming virtual. The pandemic has only increased that. You're seeing like great people who are on the cutting edge in all kinds of places around the country and around the world. And they're just as likely nowadays to start a company, the next great company as, you know, two or three folks in Silicon Valley are. So I'm very optimistic that we're going to see new company formation and very exciting businesses where founders are residing all over the place. We can talk more about it, but companies are no longer really headquartered anywhere in technology. They're increasingly entirely distributed and virtual. Is this a teachable skill? Is it something we can train people to do? To start companies and, and yeah. understand how to build them? I, I think it's like most other things, it's, it's not tends to be not something you're born with. People oftentimes have one really, really strong you know, muscle, but you need, you, need, you need a full physique to build a company. And so what ends up happening is you know, the resources that are necessary for people to learn kind of, you know, people, somebody, a founder might be absolutely world-class in some technical problem, but then they need to figure out how to build the product, how to scale it, how to take it to market, how to finance it, how to compete. You know, successfully on a global stage, et cetera. There's a lot of other things that need to be done. And those resources now are more and more available. Again, as the world gets more distributed, people who've had experience tackling all these problems exist and don't need to be local to the founders to be hired. And so that's kind of accelerating this, this virtual trend that I talked about. Yeah. The, the tip for me is always when you see the the C-suite and it's founder and CTO, right? That tells you that he was smart enough or she was smart enough to get out of the way and hire people with business skills, not just tech skills. Yeah. And, you know, it titles are telling, and I'd say there are lots of C there are lots of very technical folks who stay as CEO these days. Like that's very comfortable for companies and how they're being built. But, you know, the, the marriage of people who are brilliant technically and then brilliant with product and then brilliant go to market folks that's where the magic happens when you can put all that together and it's getting i mean it's always hard but it's getting a little easier because location is no longer a constraint this will sound a little crazy and it might just be a 
Washington perspective, but it appears to me that there's waves of money. And if you have a good idea, it doesn't matter where you are, you know, Southeast Asia, Israel, even Europe, the money will come to you because people are out looking for that opportunity. Is, is that a fair assessment or? or... Very astute. I think it's 100% accurate. One thing I, I'm, I like to say, and I, I live this every day, that capital markets, there is no barrier to entry. And so if return looks like it's available in a certain segment, money is going to flow after that. And in my little world, you know, tech startup land, it's getting, it's not so little anymore. I just, I just heard that Q3 US, the, the, the third quarter data is out for US venture capital. And I don't quote me on this because I was listening on the radio, but I think I heard $29 billion was invested in the third quarter of this year in venture capital investments, 29 billion, right? You think about that for a second. And the last three quarters, all of which have been records are all north of 25 billion. So we're, we're going to end up well north of a hundred billion invested just, just in the U S this year in new ventures in venture capital, right? That's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of funds. It's not all traditional venture capital funds. It's, you know, a lot of, a lot of this money is coming from corporate venture. A lot is coming from, you know, historically public market investors who are kind of reaching down into the private market because they know that return exists and there's good opportunity in the private market. And so because there's really no barrier to entry, capital's flowing. And it's not just happening in the US. These same entities, these same players are combing the hotspots around the world, whether it be Latin America, Israel, Southeast Asia, India. There's just a lot of places where money is going. So I used to think that corporate venture capital was sort of like a, an ornament. You know, it's something it was fashionable. And so a lot of companies announced they were setting up a venture capital arm. That's probably unfair. How would, how would you rank the corporate VC efforts? Compared to other VCs. Yeah. yeah. In, in real time, I'm thinking about a situation right now where we led a Series A in a, in a company earlier this calendar year, and the company's been going, it's been going gangbusters. Another example where it's not, the, the founders are not living in Silicon Valley, they're in Southern California. And, and, and they've been, most of their employees are local, but they're starting to hire virtually. And they just have been, you know, They've been fielding offers for a new round of financing because other they don't need the money, but other firms are seeing, wow, this this is this company's doing really well. And and one of the very strong offers that came in first was from a, a corporate VC. And you know what will happen there? I I don't know yet. The ink isn't dry on the process, but we're seeing more. First of all, there are there are more fast growth, highly valued, lots of cash on the balance sheet very innovative companies in the market today in technology than there ever have been. And we can talk a little bit about why that's the case. But because that's the case, these companies are thirsty for more innovation. And they obviously are funding a lot of R&D internally themselves to keep pushing their, their products to new, you know, in new directions and new heights. But they're also looking outside. And some of that is through M&A. But some of that is through investment. And so I don't think I've seen in my 25 years of venture more corporate venturing than I've that I'm seeing now ever. And so so it's it's part of it's it's part of the wave. You know, it's 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 not the yeah. exclusive driver, but it's part of that wave. 
you're, you're destroying all my cherished illusions when you say there's startups in Southern California. I'm going to have to, I'll have to sit down and I think about that. Yeah. But, I didn't mention LA before, but LA has become um, wow. a, a, a strong, strong area for startups as well. Amazing. Let's follow up on that one thing you said. We'll eventually get to the second question on our list. <laughs> We're not doing so well, but why are there more companies now than ever before? So what's, what's behind that? Yeah. So, so more big companies than ever before. So I wrote a, a piece in Fortune a year ago or so about what I call the, the trillion dollar opportunity yeah. for what I call developer focused software, which is kind of a geeky thing. But let me, let me take a step back, right? We talked before about how every company in the world is becoming a software company, right? And you know, even the local coffee shop in Palo Alto is competing with the other local coffee shops in Palo Alto, sure on the quality of the beans, but even more importantly, on the quality of like the website and the mobile app, because if things aren't working well, people are going to switch. So because that's happening in every industry around the globe, in every country, right? Software developers are becoming, and, and, and people who support software development are becoming like the closest thing to the tip of the spear of value for any company, whether or not they're employed internally or their third party, they are driving a ton of value for businesses and they could destroy value as well if they don't do a good job. And so increasingly what you're seeing is, first of all, a, a, a thirst to hire these people in, in all businesses around the world, in all industries, but for companies that provide the tools and technologies and platforms to make software development run better. Things like, you know, tools for developers and cloud infrastructure tools, because all the software today, the reason why it matters so much and the reason why it can be so good is it's all deployed into the cloud. The security that needs to go along with all the, the tooling, the data infrastructure, we talked about you know, the close cousin of software, being a software-driven business is being a data-driven business. And so all the data infrastructure that you need, all these companies that are, that are building these tools and technologies to support every company in the world becoming a software company are getting big fast at rates we have never seen. And that's the trillion dollar market I talked about. And it's happening. Like it's happening even faster than I thought. There's like two recent examples. There are two companies that sadly my firm GGV is not involved with, although we know and like the, the, the senior teams at both. And we think the strategies are sound. There's one company called Confluent, which was founded by the, the founders of an open source project called Kafka, which was developed at LinkedIn, which you could think of as, as a next generation way to manage the movement of data in organizations. Very, very important technology, very popular. And then another company called GitLab, which is, you could think of a full suite of tools to help developers do their business, do their work more effectively, more efficiently in a cloud modern world. Both those companies have been, gotten public in the not too distant past and both are trading you know in the high teens to low 20s billion valuation right off the gate right out of the gate and they're just they're just two of many that are coming so i think this this trillion dollar thing is ha is for real in companies that are that are building tools and technologies for developers and that's why i think they're just more valuable software and technology companies coming and again we've started to see the wave but it's it's going to keep coming yeah, one of the things you wrote that really struck me was how the 
the old tool market was very much proprietary. And to be honest, it was a little clunky, yep. you know, and so you, you get these tools and they weren't that cool. But now you've talked about two things I hope we can touch on. The first is developer driven software and that why you think that's going to be a trillion market. And then open source, which is, well, let's talk about, let's talk about the developer driven software for, first before I make any open source jokes. Well, okay. So these two things I, I view as open source is a, is a subset of developer-driven stuff. So mm-hmm. developer-driven, the, these tools and technologies are helping, again, like if you're Domino's Pizza and you've got you know an imperative to make your app even faster and make your algorithms even better so that when you know I, I come to the site the next time, they really know what to offer me as a goodie and they know what to market to me when I'm not on the site and, uh, or message me, you know, through my phone, Hey, you know, now's the time to come back and we're offering a special that they're going to be even more accurate and continue to drive orders higher and more orders over time. Right. That that's what these, these companies are thinking about every day. And so if you are developing tools and technologies that help, technical folks and organizations get better, you know, release software faster, more precise, more attuned to the customer, you win. And when I, so when I, when I talk about developer driven, that's what I'm talking about, developer focused stuff. And I, I feel like, again, it's, it's, there's never been a better time. And when we wake up five years from now, you know, the two companies I just mentioned, Confluent and GitLab are going to be a lot bigger than they are today. And there's going to be 10 more for each one of those and another 10 for each one of the ones that, you know, have been created since that are coming. It's just, it, this is an inevitable wave and I don't see it ending anytime soon. Now, open source is a, one of the ways. So the trick when you're selling to developers, developers are, are, are tricky. They are not, they're, they're not going to be persuaded by a, a nice steak dinner and a round of golf. The way that uh, you know maybe Oracle or SAP used to sell software into large companies, they want to try products. They want to hear what their peers are saying. They want to go read the documentation. They want products built for them by people like them, and they want to feel like they have some ability to influence the roadmap and be part of the process of building, you know, the products that they use. That's where open source comes in. The high level on open source is that it's a great way to present to the community of practitioners you want to sell to your software and let them let them have access to the source code, let them give you suggestions, participate in the roadmap, even contribute themselves and be you know be invested in the success of a project, which ultimately becomes a product which can then be commercialized. And that's, that's the method that you're seeing a lot of companies pursue these days. And so we're going to see more and more companies that are driven by open source achieve success. In fact, the, the two companies I just mentioned to you that are developer-focused, Confluent and GitLab are both, are both open source, what I would consider to be open source-driven companies. They, they, they started with open source software and have developed a commercial business around, around that software. That's what I was going to ask you about. A long time ago, I talked to Esther Dyson, who told me that the business model of the future was to give your software away for free. 
And at the time, I thought she was insane. But what is the business model here? How do these companies make money? Well, Esther is definitely not insane. She's way smarter than me. <laughs> and me too. So uh, Yeah, she saw it way before I did. So the business model, when you're giving something away, like how do you make any money? It's a great question. So what you're really trying to do when you open source a product is you are trying to establish a cohort, a community, if you will, that really care about it and that are going to evangelize it. They're going to help you build it. They're going to give you the suggestions you need to make it better. And so if you look at the best open source companies, they, they, all, they start with very powerful open source projects that gain a lot of devotees in the market. And those people, you know, word of mouth is very powerful amongst technical folks. And so they talk to each other and people try things because others are trying things. And, you know, the, there, are, there are blog posts about, hey, here's how I solve this big problem with this technology. And, you know, the, these things start to have a life of their own and they really can grow fast as a result. So that's the alchemy of open source. Then, you know, there's a couple of different ways that the modern company, modern commercial based open source companies have been able to monetize around that. One is called, well, I'll try not to get too geeky. One's called the open core model where, you know, you're using open source software and you love it and it's working really well, but you need some commercial features to help it run better. For example, like you might be using a, an open source software to help you with some security feature or issue, but now it's become important in your organization and you need it to be redundant, which may mean you need to run it in multiple data centers and have those things sync with each other. That could be a commercial feature. So, you know, developers bring this security focused software in house, they start using it, then they realize oh gosh, if we're going to deploy all our applications relying on this, it has to be redundant and we better pay for the redundancy feature. That's, that's the example of like an open core model. Increasingly, there's a second and fast growing model here, which is software as a service. So, you know, that's, we'll, we'll go to the same metaphor. You, you might be using this, this security feature as open source and it's great, but it's kind of a pain for you to manage yourself and you know, maybe you're having to hire a team to manage the cluster and it's getting bigger and uh, then you're running it in a redundant fashion and that's even harder. The company that's built the open source is frequently today saying, hey, we'll run it for you. We'll just run it as a software, as a service. And therefore, like you don't need to worry about the administration of it and the deployment of it. You just get the benefit of it. And, and that's, that's a model that's really starting to take hold and is, is a very important piece of a lot of the open source companies that are achieving success now in the market. So that means, I think, that software as a service is really just inextricably linked with the cloud, that this is, this is a cloud service. 100%. The cloud is sort of the substrate on which all of software as a service runs today. And, um, you know, so it makes for kind of interesting partnerships slash potential competitors with the, the cloud providers themselves, particularly if you're running an open source service as a, as a cloud service, because nothing prevents the clouds from taking your open source and running the service themselves. And so there's there, there's definitely you know a bunch of tactics and and the like that you're seeing companies have to deal with. This is get this is getting pretty detailed and technical, but that that is definitely one of the things going on in the market today. 
No, I think that's that's a crucial point for the Washington debate, because I think that's when I don't know if people are telling them, but when you look at like Senator Klobuchar or others, they've picked up on this. So this this part, people understand that some of the cloud service providers might be taking advantage of just the data that flows through their pipelines. And if you haven't written in your contract. The, the, the devil is in the detail in all the, these things. And yes, the cloud service providers are uh, do compete, but I don't see any like they they should be allowed to compete in lots of different markets. They also, like I said, they form the substrate on which all these other services are relying and running. So, the amount of value that's been unlocked by the growth and um, sort of flourish flourishing of of these cloud services is like nothing we've ever seen in technology. It is it is. It is a necessary precondition for this trillion dollar, this next trillion dollar market to to emerge, as I as I mentioned, the developer focused one. And so I'm 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 a big fan of the clouds. They're they're uh, they're tough businesses, great businesses. They're also tough negotiators. But I don't I tend to see the positive in in the fact that they have built such such amazing franchises. Well, I, w- I was going to ask you. I'm not going to ask you. I was because Esther Dyson was talking about Netscape. That's how long ago this was. And then some of what you're describing sounds a little bit like Red Hat. And that was another <laughs> one. What's different now between yeah. the, or is it just an evolution of those? Yeah. So Red Hat, you could think of as really generation one open source, where again, this is pre-cloud, right? And it's also pre every company in the world becoming a software company. <laughs> and so what Red Hat did was popularize the new operating system. Linux. And, but that was still something that was run on every machine, you know, server, desktop, laptop in organizations. And so people needed support. And that was their model. That was for the first several decades of Red Hat's life. That was their model, providing, providing uh, support for their distribu- their Linux distribution, primarily. Not a bad business, but not a breakaway business. Then I'd say the the second generation took a while to emerge for open source, but I think of companies like in the like Hadoop. I think is a good example of a second generation open source technology, and the companies that commercialized around Hadoop. There's one or two that are still public. Um, they 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 took a baby step towards the modern the modern open source stack. But I think the the current generation, which maybe you'd call the third generation of open source companies, the ones like the Confluence and GitLabs I mentioned, and many others coming, and some other great companies that are public today, like Elastic and MongoDB, these are companies that are really, if they weren't quite born for the cloud, they very quickly adapted their model to be cloud forward and, and take advantage of various aspects of the cloud. And at the same time, you know, we're now full swing in every company in the world becoming a software company. And so developers are, again, the most, like the most important people in your organization driving value. And so that's what's, that's the, that's the uh, alchemy that is creating such huge opportunity for this third generation of open source company. That's different than the red hats of the world, you know, many, many moons ago. Let's switch direction for a minute. You're a, a traditional company. You know, what we've seen in the past, of course, is that they tend to get eaten. What would be your advice for them for either evolving or surviving? What's the survivor 
survival manual for companies that are not yet software companies. You know, it's amazing. There are some companies that are adapting really well. We talked about Domino's and, you know, I, I, I don't know who made the decisions that were so prescient at Domino's, but they, they just embraced a new way of doing business and have reaped the benefits of doing that. Nike's another example, right? You know, last I looked, Nike was employing more software developers than shoe designers. And of course, you know, people love, and I'm a huge Nike fan. I've been a shareholder for like three decades. And, you know, it's been an amazing company. But just over the last few years, they've gone digital. And now I think I've, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but a very large percentage of their revenue is coming through Nike.com. They are becoming a digital business. Really remarkable when you think about their origins, you know, the waffle iron and, and the innovations that they started with. So I think those are shining lights. You know, Home Depot is another example. So some, some companies in some very traditional industries have really embraced technology in a way that I think could be a model for, for other companies in, in, in really any industry. And like anything else, you know, you, you're going to make some mistakes and you got you to take some risks that maybe feel uncomfortable. But I mean, the benefits just are so obvious now and appealing that I think more and more companies are going to are going to give this a shot. So continuing our off off course uh, direction, what does that say for car companies? What would you say to a car? The car companies seem to be figuring it out. Where where would you say they are in this? Well, one of the one of the cool things that happens um, in every industry is, you know, if there's a new market entrant that really shakes things up, that can pull everybody else along. And I think in the auto space, you know, I'm not sure if Elon Musk is credited with saying this, but I've definitely heard people call Tesla. It's like a, it's like a, what have I heard? Like, like it's a soft software sitting on four wheels. And, you know, obviously, you know, the, the Tes- Tesla's, if you've driven one, they, they drive really nicely. And they, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hardware-based innovation, right? Through the design and, and the electronic, you know, the, the no combustion engine, the batteries, et cetera. But the software really that powers those vehicles is pretty remarkable as well. And it, it allows people to customize and continually upgrade the experience in their, in their autos. I was just having lunch yesterday with a, an entrepreneur who has already built and sold one company and is now thinking about doing another. And he told me that on his way to lunch, he let his he he has a new Tesla with like the you know the up, updated autopilot, and he said it's driving more and more on its own. And you know, and and he said, look, five years from now, I don't, I don't think I'll be driving it. And you know, that's that's software at work, right? So if you're a traditional auto manufacturer, and here comes Tesla, and they're eating your lunch, and by the way, they're also a lot more valuable than you overnight because they've changed the way that investors think about the company, then you adapt or you die. And I think that's a pretty powerful motivator for a lot of people. We keep going off topic and I apologize, but I'm talking to a drone company that has a kind of a cool product because the drone has onboard artificial intelligence. So, you know, when you, if you've flown a drone, a consumer level drone, you, you usually crash it into something pretty quickly. This the AI on board keeps that from happening. So it's yeah. really cool. Where does where does AI fit into all this? And so, I hate the term AI because you know it 
it sounds like Terminator, but it, when you tell, I tried to tell people for a while, it's just coding, but that doesn't fly. So let's go back to AI. Where does it fit in? You know, AI is a very, AI is kind of like a term like mobile, right? It's such an umbrella yeah. term. You can apply it in lots of different ways in different areas and it mean it will mean different things. But what I want to say is that AI as a technology framework is advancing at very rapid rates because again, like look look at the this is maybe the the benefit of of big tech, but like you look at what the cloud service providers are doing with AI and machine learning and and the what they offer to the typical entrepreneur now in terms of power, it's really pretty remarkable. But innovation continues to come from other places. So I think we're on a curve with respect to AI that is very steep. The application of AI in different markets, you know, will 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 take very will look very different, right? So if you're in a drone and you've got some onboard AI and it's to help the drone fly more safely, right? And avoid other, you know, avoid objects, not crash, you know, land in, in an effective way, et cetera. Then, you know, there's some vision systems that, that need to be highly accurate and real time, right? And some way to connect to the rotors to make sure that they're behaving and responding in the ways they should. That kind of real time reactivity to AI, like you got to train models and they require a lot of power. And when you need real time, like the, as you said, these are on board, this stuff is all on board, right? So you need to have a lot of power on a very small device to power like that kind of rapid feedback kind of rapid feedback cycle that you need for AI to work and be valuable. So that technology development is all about constraints and then breaking through constraints. That is the big constraint is power is a big constraint for real-time AI decisioning on, you know, kind of, let's say consumer devices like, like drones. Cars are the same way, but there's a lot more power available to you. And 5G, of course, is, a, you know, the, the, the faster, if you have, uh, you know, computing happening closer to you and fast pipes, if you will, in this case, you know, pipes over the air from some device doing processing and the device that needs the answer really quickly, you can start to solve that power problem you know, through that means. And so, you know, all this stuff is just constantly evolving. And I'm, I'm just excited because I think we'll, we'll continue to see smarter and smarter hardware as these, these problems get worked out. So you think NVIDIA should keep going after ARM? You know, um, that's a loaded question. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll defer on that one. <laughs> okay, uh, fair. We talked the last time when we were on a panel, and thanks for that. We talked about unicorns, and one of the differences that came up was the number of unicorns in Europe and the number of unicorns in Israel being roughly the same, yeah. even though Europe is forty <laughs> slightly, times bigger. Yeah, <laughs> right? slightly bigger. So. What what is it you need for a unicorn? What is it you think about that when you look at an economy? So this is a policymaker question. Is yeah, the goal should be to get more unicorns in your economy. What what do you need? Well, look, it it it's a it's a great question, um, and I'd say the answer is not linear. Like you make investments, you don't see payback right away, most likely. 
these things build slowly and then they gain speed and then they, they happen quickly. So it, it's not, a, you don't, not linear. So you sort of have to trust and believe in the system. But if I, if I look at Tel Aviv and Israel more broadly as a, like an ecosystem to try to answer that question, you know, and, and borrow some of the insights from Silicon Valley as well. Like, I think the first thing you need is like a, an environment where entrepreneurship is celebrated and, you know, where failure is not, failure is not seen as a career ending, terrible thing. And, you know, as a policymaker, how do you make that happen? I think one of the things you do is you, you try, you know, maybe, maybe there are, there are tax policies, there are capital policies. You know, I think some, some forward thinking countries, Israel being one offers like grants to startups in certain areas. So there's like, we're going to care and feed you to get you past that risk point. And then there's also just being, you know, very open to capital, right? Because one of the things you need to create unicorns is you need capital. These companies have lot, they have needs. And if the capital's not there, they can never really get off the ground. And and so what I've seen in Israel, as I said before, like there's no barrier to entry. Capital will rush in, but capital also is not linear. It's like no capital, no capital. Wait, there's a winner. A ton of capital comes in. And so you've got to be patient with it, um, but also encourage and not not penalize you know, people who end up achieving some success making investments in your in your region or your country. I think those are those are all things that are important. Yeah, this panel I was on yesterday, the Koreans talked about how they were modeling innovative systems to on Israel to try and get more Korean startups. Do you think you can copy it? Is it something that countries can can just do? I think there are there are elements that you can emulate and then you have to you have to kind of let the primordial soup do its job. So <laughs> there's a cultural thing in Israel, in Israel, certainly, and I think in Silicon Valley and in other places in the world where failure, again, it's it's not the end of the world. And people are willing to take a risk on somebody who's had a failure. It's not like failures celebrated, but it's it's tolerated. And it's it doesn't just because someone has had a failure doesn't mean that they can't then have a success. That's a cultural thing. And I'm not sure, you know, if a culture is quite conservative how you how you you change that you certainly don't change it quickly it's going to be slowly but i think like to the extent there have been successful people who you know having them talk freely and openly about the the failures and the challenges they've had along the way and celebrate the lack of a straight line to success is important you know you, you need some mythology right to kind of get people to start believing and i think that's really important and what I've seen in Israel, you know, Israel was a hotbed for technology for many, many years. It was not a hotbed for unicorns until more recently. And it's because people started to believe. So it's not that like people are smarter, but they are more experienced. And now they have some belief system that's being built because they, everybody knows somebody now who's been involved with a unicorn. And by the way, then, the, and when I said it's nonlinear, then when, you know, someone spins out of a unicorn to start their own company, guess what happens? Everybody wants to back them because now they're the person who understands what happened and how, how a company was able to achieve that success. And they probably have that belief. 
and the investors around them have that belief. And so it starts to feed on itself. And you know, the, the, now the probability of that next new venture becoming a, a new unicorn is higher. And, and you know, the, the math just starts to work that you start to see more and more unicorns. And so I do think that you know, those elements of what's happened in Israel, you can distill them and you can, you can a, a, attempt to, I don't know if copy is the right word, but you can, you can try to emulate them. We're at the end of our time. Uh, any final things you'd like to say? I could ask you about the make anywhere statements, but I'll, I'll defer to you. Any, any, yeah, final- I guess that that'll be the last thing I'll say is if people are listening to this, who are not super close to the tech boom, I, I do think I, I want people to realize that in five years and certainly in 10 years, the companies that we think of as like the great companies of that era are not necessarily going to be founded in Silicon Valley or Seattle. They may be, you know, the founders may be anywhere. And when I mean anywhere, I really mean anywhere. And in and the U, not just not even in the US. And determining where those companies are quote unquote headquartered and you know, it's going to be more and more difficult to figure out because more and more companies that are software first are really really being grown with employees around the world. And, and so I just, I just think it's, it's going to change the way we think about organizations and about companies. And I, I'm not smart enough to know what the ramifications are. I just know it's happening. And I really want, I want people to recognize that. Yeah. It has real implications for governments too. And it sure does. Yeah. You know, borders are less and we didn't important. We didn't even talk about cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency and, and, and a topic about which I am not an expert, but I can tell you that that's going to blow people's minds even more. Well, I got mixed reviews on that. We, I had the, the leader, the head of the Danish Central Bank in Monday, and he gave me a long lecture on why cryptocurrency was bad, why he does like CBDC. And I thought, gee, bankers really are conservative. <laughs> yeah. Different well, Glenn, world. Thank, thank, thank you for your time, Glenn. This has been a great interview. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.